I'm Jill Shaw, and I'm here with Ross Wilson to bring you an update on what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Last night's meeting had a report from the superintendent and another from the student representative. There were a few votes and one presentation on Build BPS. There continued to be questions from school committee members and the public on how students are doing with remote learning and for the few who are in person, in-person learning. Overall, this was a relatively quick meeting, just under five hours. So good morning, Ross. Good morning, Jill, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Great. Well, Jill, last night's um, meeting began with the superintendent's report where she introduced her goals for the year. These goals will formally be presented the, at the next school committee meeting on December 16th. Mm -hmm. At a high level, these goals were focused on serving students with disabilities better, serving students who are English language learners, and reorganizing central office to better serve schools. There's really nothing new here in terms of goals. Um, these, in fact, have been goals for BPS for years. Here are some things that we should be paying attention to for the conversation at the next meeting when these goals are presented formally. Um, first, the, the superintendent's talking about serving students with disabilities better. It would be really good to have some baseline information here. Um, how, how many students have disabilities in BPS? How many of them are in sub-separate versus inclusive settings? Um, in what schools? How many schools? What programs are available to students, to all kids in what schools? Um, how many outplacements do we have for student, uh, students who need to go outside the district for services? And you know, is there a plan for bringing those services back into the school? Um, and in, you know, in fact, you know, let's get really specific about what reading programs and language-based programs are offered to our students in a specialized way um, and how do we begin to expand those um, in, in a more inclusive way across all of our schools? So, I, I, you know, that's that's part of the example, Jill, of, of what kind of baseline data I would want to see um, for for really for each of these goals. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It, so, Ross, her goals for 2021 were around special ed and ELL and organizing central office, and it sounds like some of those are kind of perpetual goals of the of the district. You know, kind of products of continuous improvement. Um, it, were you surprised that there weren't any pandemic related operating goals around getting kids physically back into buildings or building improvement or, you know, any of that sort of thing, even if it's targeted for the, you know, fall for, for end of 2021, um, remote learning, you know, reinforcement and support for teachers. Were you surprised or does that maybe fall in a different kind of place? No, I think it is surprising, Jill. I mean, these are annual goals. So, so really the question is like, given our context of remote learning um, for the majority of our students, you know, you would expect that, that some of the questions would be, or some of the goals would be related to the context that we're currently in, um, mm. which is, you know, how are we doing remote learning? How do we do remote learning better? How do we expand best practices of remote learning? Um, how do we, we serve our students with diverse learning needs um, in a remote setting? Um, these are things would be things that I would expect the committee asks at the next meeting um, uh, when the superintendent formally submits her goals. Um, the other thing I, I would uh, that came up, Jill, here was was uh, uh, Dean Coleman, um, who who does ask this question each time when the superintendent talks about her goals. Um, he really asks for them to be specific, measurable, and attainable. Mm. Um, so uh, we we will pay attention to this uh, at the next meeting when the superintendent formally submits these goals. Um, and to listen to hear about the baseline data, about the specificity and measurability of her goals, and about how those goals are really related to the context of learning um, in, this, in this school year. Yeah, he always brings up the question of assessment. How, how do we know 
where we are today and, and where we want to go and, and, and what are the measures that we're going to use to see if we're successful in getting there. That's right. Now, Jill, back to the superintendent's report. She, she, um, it's really important to note here that there was no mention of how remote learning was going um, in this presentation or how in-person learning was going for those high need students who have recently returned. Right. We would expect to hear about attendance, assessment data, reports from students and families about the effectiveness of remote learning. In fact, this would be a great opportunity for the superintendent and her team to highlight some of the best practices that are happening in our schools and in our classrooms. You know, Jill, I've, I've been following some schools and um, they are reporting the highest attendance rate that they've ever seen. Um, hmm. Wouldn't it be great to, to note this and to talk about, you know, the, the great, some of the great successes that are happening with all of our adults who are working so hard every day. In fact, yeah. Our students are in school. They're learning every day. We should be talking about that um, at school committee meeting. One has to really wonder why the district leadership is not reporting on any of the basic metrics that are happening across our district. Um, you know, Jill, Dr. Rivera asked a follow-up question regarding how remote learning is go going, and I'd like to play that question. Let's play the quote from Dr. Rivera. Parents have been surveyed about remote learning experiences, but I'm wondering to what extent have the actual students uh, in BPS been surveyed about their experiences with remote learning? Yeah, so we have surveyed the, the students as well. Um, and I would need to defer to our uh, ODA department on the most recent surveys uh, for of students. Um, I talk to BSAC all the time, um, which has been wonderful. Um, but that's just a representative uh, body of the of the student body at each school. And they've actually given me, though, really good feedback uh, from their peers and the feedback that I got with them around, you know, whether videos are turned on, um, the type of instruction, the number of hours that they have for instruction, the quality of the instruction. And I shared some of that feedback with um, our school leaders. So I had a meeting on Thursday, two weeks ago, I think it was with BSAC and shared that with on Friday. So they bring a summative of that. But then in terms of the overall survey, um, I will um, have to come back with you about what what we're going to be doing for a future survey for our students. As noted, Jill, you know, Dr. Rivera's question is a great one. Um, school is in session. It was surprising that members didn't ask more questions about the data and how remote learning was going. Um, surely there are some basic metrics that the district has collected and has available to report to the public. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point because in September and, and really earlier this year as well, all through the summer, we were hearing so much about how school was going uh, in terms of food and um, uh, updates on uh, how we were going to approach learning and academics this year, um, technology updates. You know, we, we you look at polling data, there are still a number of of kids across the country and across the state who are not connected. And um, so be, I'm, I have no idea now what's happening in Boston, but it would be interesting to know, are all of our students finally connected um, in a way that they can actually use video every day? Um, so I, so I, I'm, it, it's interesting that the committee didn't really ask about what was happening in the virtual classrooms that are really in session every day. Well, I miss, I, I, you bring up a good point. I do miss the power, the, the school opening PowerPoints that we saw back in August and September um, where, where there was, you know, slides on, 
on where we were with sort of everything, right? Yeah. Like how is technology going? What's going on with this? What's going on with that? And so we had a basic understanding of what was happening or what was going to be happening in our district. Um, we haven't received one of those updates in, in, in quite a while. Right. And now we're kind of in the thick of it, right? And so as a school committee, how do you create pandemic related policies if you don't have or ask for explicit information about what's happening now? Right. Now, the superintendent, Jill, did talk about the fact that a few hundred students are back in buildings in BPS. Mm -hmm. And she referred to a new calculation um, that the city is using to calculate um, the, the, I guess, the percentage of people infected by the virus. Um, and she noted that if the trends are continuing to move in the direction, um, the same direction that they're going now, that they're potentially maybe reopen schools. Let's, let's play a quote from the superintendent here. And what we've seen over the past two weeks is a trend in the right direction. Uh, and that indicates with additional safety measures that we've put in place that we may be able to open more schools um, to, our, uh, to our students and, um, and have more of, our, more of our high priority students return to school. So Jill, members of the public were questioning the validity of the superintendent's report here. Here's one member of the public during public comment that sums up much of what we heard last night. Last night from public comment. So basically the superintendent kind of gave, gave a report that suggested maybe things are going to change. And then at, once we moved to public comment, it seemed that some of the public wasn't exactly buying this or they, they had a different interpretation of what was going on. With all due respect to everyone here, it, it feels like we're sort of in the twilight zone. Uh, the fact that 55,000 students are learning at home with thousands of learning disabled students being further marginalized, expanding existing inequalities is being treated as if it's just another line item at a regular Boston school committee meeting. I, I haven't heard one question about the reopening plans in New York City to bring younger students back to school. N not one. I also heard Dr. Caselius gloss over the fact that the, the Boston Public Health Commission is now using a different rate to calculate positivity in a community. If you look back at the rate that is now being used, it has been well under 4% for the last several months. For some strange reason, we've only switched to using this new rate in the last couple of weeks. So I'm, I'm just having a very hard time understanding why you guys cannot convey this information to the public when it is being, it's being used to make such consequential decisions for all BPS students and parents have no idea that this is even going on. At the last meeting, I heard Dr. Caselius say that she hasn't gotten enough support from the federal government or guidance from the federal government. Are we really waiting on the federal government to give us guidance on how to open schools when there are cities all over the world, including in Europe and Canada, and right down the road in New York City that have now done this successfully? I just, I'm having a really hard time wrapping my head around that. So I hope that you guys can continue to focus on this issue primarily above and beyond everything else. The issues at the Mather, the issues with cops and schools, obviously racial equity is a huge issue that needs to be dealt with. But the issue right now is the fact that 55,000 kids are barely getting an education. 
Mr. Thank Pierce. you. Now, we don't actually know um, if 55,000 kids or whatever the number is right now who are enrolled in the uh, Boston Public Schools are getting an education or not because there have been no public reports or updates on how school is going at BPS. So we get this view from public comment, but it's not comprehensive. And it's curious the school committee is not probing further to understand what school is like for the students that they're tasked with serving. Um, another member of the public sort of got to this in highlighting questions that families were asking and imploring school committee members to please ask these same questions so that they could get answers. Good evening. I'm here because as others have said, school is essential. I'm a parent of a BPS student in K2 and a member of Voices for BPS Families. With no timeline for when BPS students will return to the classroom, it is striking that parents and the public have been given virtually no information about how remote learning is actually working or not working as the case may be. There are so many questions. What are attendance rates at each school and in each grade level? How are attendance rates calculated? How many hours of synchronous learning are students actually attending each day? What are the assignment completion rates? More globally, how is BPS evaluating the effect and effectiveness of remote education? Is BPS evaluating the effect and effectiveness of remote education? We saw the survey circulated earlier this week. What else are you doing to check on education of your students? On Tuesday, Voices for BPS Families submitted a records request to the city seeking records and data regarding the effectiveness and effect of remote education in BPS schools. We are building on the work of Councillor <coughs> Campbell, uh, who our request we understand was never responded to. We hope that BPS meets the statutory deadlines and provides us that information promptly. <coughs> As you have already heard and will hear throughout the night, Children and families across the city are suffering under remote education. They deserve transparency regarding that remote education. Thank you. Lots of good questions here, Jill, and, and really good prompts for the school committee members um, to be asking these questions. And it's unfortunate that the, um, that the public has had to file Freedom of Information Act um, requests in order to get the basic answers to their questions, such as what is the attendance rate how many hours are students learning? What is the completion rate of assignments? How is BPS measuring effectiveness? I mean, these are basic things that we would expect to hear in the superintendent's report. And now we're at a point where, where members of the public are filing um, formal requests for this information. Yeah, so, that, so um, you're saying the public is requesting, they're FOIAing the information? They are, right. Yeah. So the public is saying, you know, since we're not hearing this at school committee meetings, we're not hearing members ask these questions, there is no responses from the, the leadership of BPS. So we're gonna have to file um, requests, um, which costs money and it takes time and effort for BPS to pull this together. You would you would just wonder why, why are we just not presenting this information in a transparent way? Yeah, right, right. So, so then we shifted, right? In we shifted, right. So, so we, we, we heard from, from somebody who speaks at most meetings, Jill, during public comment, Ruby Reyes, who's the executive director of the uh, Boston Education Justice Alliance. Um, where, where she's pointing out again that, that without the information that people need and without clear guidance and leadership, we're really pitting families against each other. So let's, let's play that quote. My name is Ruby Reyes. I'm the director of the Boston Education Justice Alliance. 
Throughout reopening, BPS has worked to turn school communities against one another. From gaslighting teachers by claiming an open window and box fan or adequate air filtration systems, to pitting parents against one another and claiming that high needs are different from students with higher or highest needs. These divisive methods are not what students and families need right now or ever. What we need is a leadership that listens to school communities and advocates for the needs of our students. And then Jill, relatedly, we, we heard um, uh, public comment on a report from the last meeting around BPS's performance on hiring teachers of color and linguistic diversity in this city, in the city, in the school system. Um, we heard from, from two you know, members of the community who are incredibly well-respected and, and really have been leaders in the Boston schools for, for decades. Uh, um, so let's, let's start with a comment from, from John Mudd um, about the report from last week on teacher diversity. Good evening. Uh, I appreciate the detail of the Office of Human Capital report on diversity presented at the last meeting, and especially the increased emphasis on MTEL support, retention, and exit interviews but I'm also extremely disappointed in the actual results that you reported on diversity. You haven't even met the Garrity Court order for 25% black teachers for more than a decade. And you'll hear more about that in a few moments. But deeply disappointing to me is that as far as I could hear, there was no mention of your own publicly stated policy that there should be a match between the diversity of teachers and the diversity of students in BPS. Under this policy, the gaps are much, much greater, more than 10 percentage points for black teachers, more than 30 percentage points for Latino teachers. Yet to my ears, not one school committee member mentioned this policy, even though this was goal was part of the strategic vision of the school committee in 2015, the opportunity and achievement gap policy in 2016, and the superintendent's 2025 strategic plan approved this year. So what does this mean? Are you really serious about this policy? If you are in fact committed, I would ask you to take the following four steps. One, reaffirm publicly that you are committed to the long-term policy of matching the diversity of teachers to the diversity of students. Two, direct the school department to report the gaps in this match between teachers and students, in addition to reporting the Garrity benchmarks. Three, Add language diversity explicitly to the match between students and teachers and direct the department to report on those gaps. And finally, don't continue the kind of self-satisfied pat on the back tone. Please show some urgency and demand that the department move more aggressively on this issue. Which was also followed by similar feedback from a member of the public and, and longtime leader, Barbara Fields. Let's play the quote from Barbara. I, the information as framed, was framed so that it misrepresents the level of progress made and places a spin on the information. I appreciate the hard work that the team has done and I truly commend the team for those efforts. However, I must point out that regrettably, the 2021 20, hiring update continues to show the lack of any real significant progress to obtain the minimal 25% black teachers as mandated by the court, despite BPS diversity policies and programs. You know, Jill, it, it really sounds like the public is concerned with the framing of the data that was presented. 
um, and they're calling for the, the committee to focus on the issue of hiring teachers of color um, and teachers who have linguistic diversity. Um, it's, it's really important that we get the data right here, Jill, and, and, and not only that the school system release the appropriate data in, in a transparent way, but when they are reporting on data, they're doing so um, in a very concrete, transparent way without trying to spin the data one way or the other. Yeah, that makes sense. So as we moved through the evening, we moved into the only report of the evening, which was an update on Build BPS. Ross, can you just remind us all what, what is Build BPS? All right, Jill, I'm going to give, allow me a couple of minutes here to give a little background on Build BPS. Okay. Um, so Build BPS was pitched as a master facilities plan um, that was sort of finalized in 2016. Um, the, the plan was essentially, um, let, me quote, let me give a quote from the plan on page 230. Um, the demands of the modern world differ vastly from those in the past. Preparing students to succeed in today's economy, as well as the economy of the future, we require buildings that support transformative teaching and learning methodologies. The majority of Boston's buildings were designed to support older, rigid approaches to education. So it's important to note here, Jill, that, that this plan was, was meant to sort of redefine and redesign what learning should look like in the school system. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was a minimum of a $1 billion, or it is a minimum of a $1 billion plan over 10 years to focus on school facilities with 60% of BPS buildings um, being built before World War II, right? So the general right. context of this master facilities plan is really to redefine education with, and redefine our buildings so they're supporting a new way of educating our students. So is the commitment of a billion dollars over 10 years, or I mean, did they think about it in terms of a hundred million a year? they just basically were like, we're gonna, we're gonna have a set of projects that help us meet the demands of the modern economy and we're gonna spend at least a billion dollars. Right, and so this included like building new schools, um, renovating schools, um, designing new learning spaces in, in buildings, um, really trying to overhaul what education looks like in, an, in a very outdated stock of buildings in, in the school system. I, you know, um, I totally appreciate it's very it's very admirable. It's definitely the right thing to do. There are 125 school buildings in the city of Boston. That's correct. So, so that that number is probably pretty low, actually, right? If you're thinking about transforming the district to. Well, we heard last night from from um, uh, the team in BPS that some of the you know the new buildings that are being built, including Boston Arts Academy and the Upper Quincy School, are costing well over a hundred million dollars. Yeah. Okay. Each. Yeah. Um, it's expensive. So Jill, it's also important to note that one part of BPS build BPS is a was a demographic study that basically stated that the population of Boston is growing and the student population of BPS would increase by approximately 10,000 students over the next 10 years. This is starting mm -hmm. in 2016. So the premise of Build BPS is what the, was that the school system will have at least 65,000 kids in it um, by 2026. Most of that growth was projected to be students of color. And this is an important part of the planning process. Because currently in four years, the number of BPS students has actually decreased. It currently stands at 50,000 students. The, hmm. the current system we have is designed to educate approximately 70,000 students in the current educational model. So Jill, this goes back and, and relates to sort of grade configuration and where our buildings are and are our buildings in the right location with the right grades. So as mentioned last night, 
it wasn't the primary purpose of build BPS to address grade configurations or this notion of K to six schools and seven to 12 schools. But it is an important part of the discussion because our buildings need to be designed to support the appropriate grade configuration. It's also important to note that two of the neighborhoods with the biggest declines in student population are neighborhoods that were mentioned last night. Charlestown has had an 11% decrease in student population um, this year. This wow. should inform what happens to the closing Edwards School building in Charlestown. Um, mm -hmm. There was conversation about moving it to an early learning center or some other elementary school, but one has to question with an 11% decrease in population, is that the right usage of the building uh, the, for the Edwards uh, building? Also right. in Alston Brighton has experienced almost a 13% decline. Um, now the idea of a brand new elementary school that was discussed last night certainly doesn't align uh, with the, uh, this declining data in Alston Brighton. So Jill, I mean, this is a, just a bit of a, a, you know, there's a lot more to discuss here with enrollment trends and population trends. And I think we should do a little special edition of last night at school committee on build BPS and bring on some people, you know, who've been following this process um, all along. What yeah. do you think? Maybe next week. That's a great idea. Let's do it. I love it. So Jill, the, the presentation, the build BPS presentation essentially covered the building of new buildings that were planned, including Boston Arts Academy, the Josiah Quincy School and the Carter School, um, as well as the renovation of bathrooms, increasing access to water, uh, clean water in schools. Um, the last bit of expansion of My Way Cafe. So, so it, the, the city announced last night that um, all the kitchens in the school district will have been renovated by the end of this year. And um, so that means every school will have My Way Cafe next year. So great. Um, so great. And then, yeah. And then lastly, you know, it was really around these two pieces of, of, um, uh, of school mergers or closures that, um, that will require a vote from the school committee at the next meeting. Um, so that includes the closing of the Edwards School in Charlestown and making the Charlestown High School a grade 7 to 12. It's currently 9 to 12. So they want to make Charleston High School 7 to 12 and the merger of the McCormick School and Boston Community Leadership Academy. Um, and this has been in the works for, for a, a while and the teachers are working really hard on configuring a seven to 12 new school at the McCormick building. Um, and that will require a vote of the school committee at the next meeting. That was essentially the crux of the presentation for, for Build BPS. All right, well, as the, so after the presentation, we got to, um, school committee questions. And one of the members of school committee asked about the impact of the pandemic. So here's Ms. Robinson with a question about how the pandemic impacts Build BPS, which I think you're getting to in what you just said. Um, and here's the superintendent's response. Given all that COVID is teaching us about buildings, um, as we continue to look at Build BPS, do we have to put a pause on some of the things we were thinking to go back and relook at some of our current buildings that may or may not have needed or in, in, in four years ago um, needed certain kinds of renovations. But now as we're sitting in the middle of COVID and finding that um, it's our buildings as well as any other number of issues that are preventing us from fully reopening. Um, our buildings are old and, um, and I'm not quite sure all of the things that are being required of newer buildings, whether it's possible 
to do them in a cost-effective way in our current buildings. Ms. So, yeah. we don't want to get ahead of our skis okay. for our December 16th retreat. Okay. So um, we're going to bring all of these dilemmas okay. that we found with COVID, um, you know, air systems and the importance okay. of air quality uh, to the health and safety of our, our children and our staff that are in the buildings. Um, the overall cost of our buildings, the yeah. pathway work that you all passed prior to my coming, um, and that impact on enrollment, um, and the and we'll break that down by demographics so you can see how many kids we're losing by neighborhood and by race and ethnicity mm -hmm. um, and grade level. I think that it you know all of this has to be looked at in terms of stabilizing our enro enrollment and stabilizing our district. And I think that there is going to be opportunity for us to really think uh, more broadly and comprehensively about our school facilities and the kind of learning environments that our children ought to have in terms of opening up opportunity and access. Mm -hmm. okay. So we'll, we'll get, we'll we'll get to we'll all of those questions on the 16th. So Jill, this is going to be a big agenda for the for the offsite coming up on December twelfth, which, by the way, will be publicly broadcasted on Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, and if you have nothing going on on December twelfth, we encourage you to listen in for a full day of uh, retreat, a school community retreat. On um, I think I believe it begins at nine a.m. Yeah. Um, now, Jill, Dr. Rivera also asked a very similar question to Ms. Robinson um, of the superintendent. Let's play Dr. Rivera's question. And, and you know what, let's play right after it, the superintendent's response, and then the CFO also, Nate Cooter, um, response a, a bit as well. So I just, I guess I'm just wondering how, um, how are the current declines in the enrollments that we're experiencing right now? Um, you know, how could this affect some of these, these plans? Like, should, should we be taking a pause on, on, on some of this, um, given the fact that there are potentially going to be some really significant changes in the enrollments um, throughout the whole district. We are just now going to be talking with you and setting the stage for future capital improvements and future capital um, builds and renovations as we think about enrollment decline, budgets, outcomes, uh, equity, becoming an anti-racist district. Um, so this is just really to share with you some of the existing things that uh, were already uh, in, the, in the hopper, so to speak. And so it, at, the retreat, could... at the retreat, we'll be taking a much deeper dive. Chief Cooter? Yeah, if you don't, if you don't mind, if I could just add um, to that. Um, and I just want to recognize the the tension that you're feeling with this update in the context of reopening is something that we've been struggling with as an organization. Just in terms of, you know, some of these changes are significant to to communities, um, and how do we continue to move forward on this important work, particularly the reconfiguration work, um, while our community is going through this collective uh, experience, this collective trauma. So, so, Jill, you know, the school committee seems to be aware of the declining enrollment numbers. They're certainly aware of the pandemic and they're expressing their concern about the upcoming budget and how money will be spent across the school system. Um, and the administration seems to be aware of these pressures. It will be important for school committee members to push for the right policies to help the district, its families, students and staff really successfully deal with what we're currently going through in this pandemic. Yeah. So. 
maybe this is a bit of an acknowledgement um, that we have a difficult road ahead of us. And it certainly will be good for school committee members to, I think, maybe realign with the public um, and those who are actually in school right now. Um, and that's going to require that school committee ask for the right data and information to make sure that they can set up policies that help us get to a good place to and through this crisis. Well, that's what happened last night at BPS School Committee. Thank you for listening to this edition of Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston's students. Have a great day.